Good evening. Thank you very much for the kind introduction, Franz Waldenberger, my old colleague from 20 years ago at DIJ. So it's a homecoming for me tonight, and I'm very pleased to be here uh, for this opportunity to talk about Korean firms HRM, particularly global HRM, uh, at this forum. So um, let me first briefly give you an overview of what I'd like to talk about for the next 30 minutes. Actually, before moving into the actual topic of global HRM of Korean companies, I'd like to provide a little bit of a background story. Uh, the main reason why I like to do this is uh, this context is absolutely necessary for understanding what's going on. Furthermore, uh, I assume many or most of you being here in Tokyo, Japan, are familiar or have heard a lot about Japanese firms HRM and maybe even Japanese firms global HRM. But I assume fewer among you are, are familiar with Korean firms. And um, you may assume, well, it's a close-by country, partially similar cultural background, so it may be more or less the same, it may be similar to Japan, but it's absolutely not. And um, therefore, there is actually a need to clarify the differences. So first about Korean management in general, and then about the status of globalization of Korean firms in general. And then, oh, let's move into actual global HRM of Korean firms. Okay, um, what is uh, Korean style management about? As uh, Professor Waldenberger has mentioned, I have actually written a book about it and published a few years ago. And the label I put on it was, in fact, tiger management. It's not just a gimmick to say, well, uh, tiger is a national animal or emblem of Korea. Well, that's true, but the real reason why I put this label on it is um, that actually many of the features of Korean-style management really allure very well with the image of we have of tigers, being very aggressive, flexible, uh, and so on. So let's uh, review this very concisely because uh, I also should talk about the main topic. Three are management areas where you can see a clear difference between Korean companies and their counterparts in Western countries as well as Japan. Business strategy, leadership, uh, and actually HR. So I'll go through this very quickly just as a background story. First about strategy. Here, to put it very briefly, Korean companies are very outgoing, generally. Very aggressive, so true tigers, on all dimensions. Very much into diversification, product diversification, into new industries, sometimes related, sometimes unrelated, always looking at new opportunities. Investing a lot into new technology development, which by itself is also very outgoing and very risky. And then also geographical diversification, which directly links to global business. Very quickly moving into new markets and areas and trying to sell even more products. So um, to, put, to, to put this together very quickly, it's very aggressive, very outgoing, and thereby, as those among you are familiar with uh, 
our business and business theory, you know, you know also it's very risky. It's, it's uh, risky. And sometimes Korean companies actually go bankrupt because they overreach. But surprisingly often, they succeed with their very aggressive strategies. And part of the reason for that is the implementation style of their strategies. It's very flexible and very quick. So Pali Pali is actually Korean, meaning hurry, hurry, or quickly, quickly. And that says everything. They are always in a hurry and roll things they have decided for once out extremely quickly. Very few others in the world can match them. And then they are very flexible, internally, externally, work with whoever in whatever way, if it makes sense, let's just do it. Internally reallocating funds, resources, people to new ventures and new plans, new projects, everything is possible. So um, this focus on speed and flexibility often helps with rolling out these very aggressive strategies, particularly in very dynamic business environments. It doesn't always work, but it, it works actually quite often. Uh, so the takeaway here is uh, for today's topic, Korean companies, very outgoing and always in a big hurry and very flexible. So things can change on the run. It doesn't mean you have decided on a specific way of moving forward and a plan last year that you do it exactly in this way this year. As long as the bottom line is good, anything can change. That's the basic attitude. Second aspect is leadership. Here you have a very clear situation of strong reliance on top-level leadership. Why is that? Pretty much all Korean companies are family-owned. They are basically family business, family companies and family business groups, or chebo. And um, that really means these owner managers have overwhelming power. They own the company and they run the companies themselves. And often they are quite charismatic. Somehow in the Korean system, charismatic people often make it to the top. They instill corporate values, which are directly linked to their personal values on the organization. They set very specific and demanding goals, which are really implemented at all levels of organization, starting at larger business units, but then going down to departments, teams, and individuals, really meaning you and you and you, you need to make 30 or 50% more next year to satisfy the company and like this. And always keeping up the tension, sometimes even creating a crisis from inside the company, not from outside. By basically going all out, it links to the strategy again, burning the bridge behind you, saying, okay, now we need to make uh, the impossible thing possible or we are bankrupt, so please do it. Um, something like this. Anyway, very strong alliance on top leadership. Um, it's very different from Western companies and actually also from many Japanese companies. Very top-heavy and it's also embedded in the Korean culture. So that's the takeaway, this strong alliance on top-level leadership and the strong centralization of Korean companies also as an application of its takeaway from this aspect. And now we are moving to HR already, so coming closer to the actual topic tonight. Here you see some partial similarities with Japan, partial. 
Korean companies, if they can, also very picky about selecting people and not looking only at educational background, but also at personality and so on, and fit with company culture. And then there is this emphasis on training, training, training. So you also know that from Japan. But my overall view is it's even stronger in Korea. They have very huge corporate training centers. Uh, they send not just their new employees, but also managers at all levels. Mid-level mid managers, even senior executives, they always get training, training, training. And uh, how about incentives, incentive structure? Traditionally doing it more or less Japanese way. So Japan was the role model in post-war Korea, 1960s, 70s, up to the 80s. Seniority-based uh, compensation and promotion, you know these things from Japan. But it has changed. Uh, from the 90s and even more so after the 1997 financial crisis. It's uh, effectively now a hybrid of Japanese-style seniority-based HR and more Western-style performance-based HR. Uh, so still you won't see 25-year-old high flyers at the boards of large companies, but if you do well, you get a big bonus, you get a fast promotion and things like that. And if you don't do well, you will also, uh, you, you will also get a, feed, a feedback very quickly. So it's um, actually putting a lot of pressure on people, frankly speaking, Korean style HR, very strong incentivization. And you need to undergo a lot of training. A little bit of background of that, for that. Why are Koreans working for these companies willing to undergo all this, to, 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 to go under all this pressure. Uh, it's worthwhile to remember Korea was quite a poor country after, until well, a couple of generations ago. So Korea is actually full of hungry people. No more literally hungry, but very ambitious people. They want to uh, not just fulfill their country's dream, but also their Korean dream, their, their personal dream, like moving up the social ladder, making money, things like that, um, acquiring a fortune, becoming famous, whatever it is. So people individually are also very hungry. So they want to actually work in ambitious companies, ambitious people in ambitious companies. And then all this training, training, training goes down very well in Korea. Why? Because of this Confucian tradition. So people actually like to be trained to learn new things and so on. So this is also part of a background story. So this is um, a takeaway in HR terms. It's a hybrid now of Japanese-style HR and Western-style HR, which often creates conflicts in the Korean companies, frankly. Anyway, they try to do a little bit of both. Okay, now also very brief update or overview of global business status of Korean companies. And I also, for your reference, put the data for Japan in direct comparison on the slides. Uh, first, exports, just selling products abroad. Uh, in absolute numbers, it's not surprising Japan is exporting more than Korea because it's a much bigger country. But uh, amazingly, Korean exports are Absolutely speaking, now almost the same as Japan. 700 billion US dollars recently against 800 for Japan, um, which is quite surprising. And if you look at 
exports over GDP, you actually see Korean export intensity is more than 50%. They are, so to speak, an export powerhouse. There's this Japan, because partially, of course, because the country is bigger, there's a country size effect, larger domestic market. But anyway, it's just 16%. So you see Korea exports a lot, and relatively speaking, much more than Japan. But then what about actually investing in other countries? Uh, foreign direct investment. Not just shipping uh, products and services, selling products and services in other countries, but actually localizing in other countries. This is where the FDI comes out, setting up subsidiaries, factories, uh, R&D labs, logistics centers, and so on. Here you see in absolute numbers, Japan overwhelmingly more FDI stock. This is accumulated FDI than Korea. However, amazingly, Korea FDI stock increased from here almost invisible, just what is it, $2 billion, 1990 to $260 billion. It's something like 100 times increase over 25 years. So coming pretty much from nowhere, having no local footprint in other countries in global business now catching up. And if you again control this for GDP size, you see also, well, 25 years ago, Japan already had a sizable FDI stock, also compared with size of economy Korea didn't have. Now both are moving up, localizing more and more in other countries. Korea is still a little lower than Japan here, but again, moving up very quickly. So to sum this up, Korean global business is very strongly driven by exports, more so than Japan, relatively speaking. And outward FDI has been lagging behind and came out only in the last couple of decades, but in a vengeance. You already know that from the previous part, Korean style, very quickly out from nowhere, moving in um, in a big hurry. What you cannot see from the statistics, two more points, however, important to notice. Most of this FDI until now has been driven by large business groups, chebols and large companies. Not so much SMEs, which are still mostly exporting in Korea. Secondly, most of this FDI is clearly about greenfield projects. They set up their own business from zero in other countries. United States, Europe, a lot in China recently, other Asian countries and so on. Very few M&As. They want to build their own networks from the scratch. So you see already some pieces of a puzzle coming together, moving up very quickly from nowhere, moving out and very young, however, very young history of localization in other countries and driven by chapels and trying to build it their own way. Okay, so far for the background part, now actually to moving to the global HR of Korean firms. Now you already know a little bit about their, their general business model and management style and their globalization status. Again, Korean companies actually started really going abroad, localizing abroad rather recently. Very few, first Chebol starting in the 80s, 90s. It's not so long ago. The, the stage one simply and now you understand already the background, always in a hurry, 
just rolling it out what we know. What did we know? Korean style, nothing else, of course. Uh, many of the managers were also not very knowledgeable about other countries. Just, just, just go out and do what we know, what we knew, Korean style. So very hierarchical rank system, Korean style, and then try to do the hybrid of seniority and performance-based. Then, because it's top-heavy, headquarters wants to control everything, all our executive positions in overseas subsidiaries all run by all done by Korean expats, people sent from Korea. So in in a nutshell, very ethnocentric global RGM. So headquarters controls everything and everything they try to do headquarters style wherever it was, somewhere else in the world. What was the outcome? Um, actually you need to see this in perspective. Coming from nowhere, rolling out very quickly, and in that sense it worked. Because, uh, again, they didn't have experience and they tried to establish their business very quickly in other countries. It enabled them to do this because there was a close coordination between headquarters and local country managers who are also Korean. So in that sense, it worked in a sense of actually building, having a footprint in other countries and building up subsidiaries, getting some business on the ground, get it going. However, there were, of course, strong negative side effects. Um, obviously, the Korean style HR putting so much pressure on people and asking them to take all this training and so on, and then listen to the boss only, maybe that's most important, and not doing things by yourself, that doesn't go well with many other cultures, particularly Western cultures. So um, there was a strong mismatch with local expectations and needs of, of local employees. And as a result of that, in the medium long term, it was very hard for the Korean companies to get hold of very capable and motivated local staff and uh, motivate them and also to keep them once they have that. So um, they understood that, the companies. It was not that they didn't understand it. They, they didn't roll this out, the Korean style, because they thought it's the best in the world. It was simply because that was the only thing they knew and they were in a hurry, in a big hurry as usual. So they, also very Korean style, I already mentioned to you, they were flexible, saying, okay, this Korean style doesn't go down well with people in the US, in Europe, and also other parts of the world. Okay, let's be pragmatic. Let's go a little bit local. So in Western countries, we make the thing a little bit less hierarchical. Our employment can be more flexible, for example. Our depending on the country, all kinds of things can be localized. Though I have to say the strong training orientation, this is kind of core Korean idea that didn't go away, so they, they kept it in many subsidiaries. Um, executive staffing, however, still dominated by Koreans. They didn't, send, they didn't stop sending Koreans as managing directors and country managers to other countries. Still, the show running by, run by Koreans in the US, Europe, and China, and so on. Um, but now more flexible. Uh, I would say practically the degree of local adaptation was strongly determined by individual Korean executives, country managers. Some among them very strong on it, saying, well, we need to change things here, otherwise this is not working, so let's change more or less everything. 
others more reluctant, they wanted to stay more Korean. So it was not necessarily totally systematic, but many of these Korean country managers changed things quite a bit. So they ended up with a little bit of hybrid of ethnocentric and polycentric HR. Ethnocentric because still Koreans running the show, but then polycentric also trying to localize the HR system uh, to find to, to, to get a better response from local employees. What were the outcomes? I would say still, again, mostly it worked reasonably well. Local staff, local managers, clearly much more motiv motivated now in Korean overseas firms than they used to be at the initial stage when everything was too Korean, so people are more motivated. Um, also, if you're more localized, generally, also with other stakeholders, it's easier to have a higher responsiveness, to rely more on local managers. But again, there was a negative side effect. Why? Because in Korea itself, things didn't change that much. They changed a little bit over the last 20 years, but not that much in many companies. So uh, often a big gap between what was happening in or, or what is happening in overseas subsidiaries and what's happening in Korea in the HR system. And also, I wouldn't say by intention, but as a result, there's actually still a glass ceiling for managers, non-Korean managers working in the local subsidiaries somewhere else. Why? Because it, uh, there is a detachment between what's going on in other countries and what's going on in Korea. And they're moving around people from other countries to Korea. Well, it happens, but it's a very rare case. So local managers understand maybe it's very hard ever to get to headquarters to make a global career, actually in this sometimes very global company. So people are more motivated in this than in the past. They're given also more, more competence than in the past, relatively speaking. They are, relatively speaking, probably happier on average, but still there is some limitation. Most capable and ambitious and high-flying people, maybe they don't want to work for these companies in the long run because they think, I cannot never make it to the top. It's too much of a Korean company. So, um, this is the current status on average, I have to say can talk more about it if there are questions later on. Of course, not all Korean companies are the same, but typical situation. Actually, a rapid transition you can see, and also some flexible adjustment, but still you have these two problems. Lack of integration between other countries and, what's, and, and headquarters or home country, and uh, then developing talent really for the most senior positions, uh, local talent, non-Korean talent, uh, this is still hard to do. They don't really have a truly global HR. Why they don't have so? Well, of course you could say because it happened all rather recently. We have to keep this in mind again. Most of these things were rolled out over the last 10, 20 years only for the Korean companies. It's a young history. But I wouldn't say it's just this, so to speak, legacy effect or the recency effect. Uh, there are also, I think, a few underlying barriers which hold back even those Korean companies or executives who see the problem and want to change from actually doing it right away. And some of these things are again linked to the basic Korean way 
of managing companies, and all these things are a little related to each other. First one is, again, and that hasn't really changed that dramatically, Korean companies are top-heavy still. There are these owner-managers of the chapel of the companies, everybody listening to them, following the leader. So in global organizations, that means practically the headquarters calling the shots at least for important decisions. So global subsidiaries have some competence, but not too much competence. Secondly, as I mentioned, still most of the show, even in the overseas subsidiary, is run by Korean managers. That hasn't really changed. And thirdly, and here you see things come together, it's also reality on the ground, most Korean executives, either they don't speak English, that was a real problem in the past, partially it is still the problem, it's gradually moving away, or secondly, they're reluctant to use English. Of course, not with the customer or actual foreigners, outside stakeholders, yes, they pull out their English and many among them command actually very good English, it's different from Japan, I, I, I would say. Many of them have uh, global education and so on. But in, in internal communication in their company, board meetings, management meetings and so on, then also many or most people sitting at the table are Korean, they don't want to use English. That's the reality on the ground. Again, it's also often a generation problem. You, uh, Korea is a big gap between old people, middle-aged people and young people regarding everything. So these three things, all a little related to each other, hold them a little back to go to the next level. However, my view is it's not the end of the story. There are very Korean-style things going on all the time and sometimes coming out quickly in specific companies. First part of the story, in large companies, the representative chapel, Samsung, Hyundai, LG, and so on, you see actually a clear tendency over the last five to 10 years. They want to do more with non-Korean subsidiary managers. They invest more in global talent, non-Korean talent, uh, in, and, and therefore also hint them, well, you can really make a career in this company and at some time move to headquarters. It still is possible. Or overseas um, operations are so large, actually it satisfies them. I once talked to, um, what was it, Indian, chief engineer of um, uh, leading Chebol, well, Indian subsidiary, and uh, I just asked him, how many people report to you? He told me 5,000. So we are not talking about uh, small offices out there. Anyway, so they try to do more here. They also hire sometimes quite aggressively foreign talent both young talent and executives, senior executives, now for headquarters, for Korea. Why? Because they want to globalize what's happening in Korea. Therefore, we need, to, we need more foreigners. Actually, push the Koreans who do speak English, but they don't want to speak English. So we need foreigners who don't speak Korean to, to globalize our communication and our corporate culture. And some, though not all, of the large chapels quite aggressive on this. And then thirdly, also again, some, though not all, of the next generation leaders, actually totally different people, very globalized, very confident of global communication. They don't have a problem doing everything in English and so on. So they, they also bring a new leadership style. It's not everywhere the same, but in some Chevrolet you see a big change here. 
It just takes some time to feed through the organization. And then there is the second part. Um, the companies that are not in the news most of the time, but there are lots of them in Korea. Venture firms, new venture firms, technology firms, even startup firms. Many of them are born globals. They go global more or less from day one. They, they start a business. Why is that? Because they have young leaders, founders, who have been US educated or Western educated, know the world, the world is their market, and they have a strong background in education and a very strong ba global background, and they try to build a global company, more or less, from day one. Yeah, and uh, for some of these companies, I've seen this. They, though their headquarters are still in Korea, they try to build very global systems from day one. It's just they haven't the scale yet of Samsung and LG and so on. But they are coming, and some of these companies are, again, Korean-style, growing very quickly and moving into global markets, particularly in IT industries. So um, what is my wrap-up for today's talk, uh, for perspectives? I actually see rapid modernization efforts in some large firms. Again, not in all among them. It's not uniform. I think I can say that the largest chapel, Samsung, that is uh, by sales, is the number one IT company in the world. So it's, it's not uh, exactly a small company. It uh, commands also some leading career. They are particularly aggressive on it. And probably some others, if they see Samsung does it and it works, will also follow. And then there is this new generation of firms also feeding in. So um, these things, they won't go away overnight, but both structurally, because new and global firms moving up, and also by actually by leadership in the older firms trying to change from within, I think there is real change on the way. Um, you need to be realistic, though, again, Koreans try to do things very quickly, but these are, of course, structural issues. You cannot change everything, how your company works overnight. But I would say there is at least a possibility that many of these companies really set up global HR systems, really meaning it doesn't matter whether you are Korean or Chinese or Japanese or European or American, it's really a global firm to come to that point, I guess, in 10 to 20 years. Um, there's at least a possibility. It's up to the firms and the managers themselves, of course. Okay, I'll stop here. Thank you very much for listening, and I'd like to pass on to the second speaker. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is uh, Yamanishi from Nomira Group. And uh, firstly, thank you. So I'm very pleased to be invited here, and I'm very pleased to have some interaction with you tonight regarding the challenge of globalization for Japanese HR management. And before I kick off my presentation, let me briefly introduce myself so that you can have some ideas where my thought comes from. So I have been working for Nomura Group for many years, many, many years. I used to say explicitly, but nowadays I just refrain to refer to the numbers of years. I just say many, many years. And uh, up to 2001, I was in charge of Japanese equity sales. So I was in Zurich, Switzerland for six years, and I was in London four years, and Hong Kong, Singapore for three years. And my prime responsibility was to sell Japanese equities, Japanese companies, 
to overseas fund managers, overseas investors. So as you could imagine, I made a best effort to make a recommendation of Japanese companies and try to persuade them to invest more into Japan. And naturally, as you can imagine, I had many objections and disagreements. So I had a lot of debate with them. And through these discussions, I felt some of the criticisms of these fund managers are quite fair. And I tended to agree with some of their opinions. So it was a very good learning experience for me. And after 2002, I came back to Tokyo and I took up a responsibility of HR. My primary responsibility was strategy planning part of、uh, Nomura Tokyo HR functions. So I did some changes to HR scheme of Nomura. And during my assignment of HR for 13 years, Nomura acquired the major part of Lehman Brothers. Lehman Brothers was one of the major investment banks. And as you could imagine, American investment banks have very strong culture. Their culture, I believe, could be different even from ordinary US companies. And it was certainly different from the culture of ordinary Japanese firm. And actually, we did it at the time of、uh, the largest finances, one of the largest financial crises in the history. So it was tough and interesting experience. So, together with my colleagues in Nomura and from Lehman Brothers, I really tried to try my best in order to make that acquisition successful. So, it was also a very good learning experience. So, these were two major my learning experiences out of my career. And uh, uh, I mean, just a brief,、uh, I mean, I'm just、uh, trying to use these two anecdotes to introduce myself. And today's my job is to speak about the challenge of globalization for Japanese HR management. And hopefully, I try to make some proposal to, to solve these problems. And when I say the challenge of Japanese HR management for globalization, let me define what is the challenge for them. Maybe I put one phrase here and I pause just for a few, few seconds. Please kindly consider what is the challenge for them. And let's compare the note in a few seconds. And actually, I believe the challenge for Japanese、uh, companies when they are trying to globalize it is a success of the traditional HR scheme in the past. The success in the past. So I think in our life and in our business, it often happens the success in the past、uh, prevents the change for the future. And it turns out to be an obstacle. When we are trying to make a real change. And I believe, I, I think, the same may happen for Japanese HR management. And that could be the success in the past.、Uh, in the past. We can raise、uh, some examples. For example, classic cases like、uh, Kodak. Kodak is an American film company. Some say they were so good at film small camera because they were so successful for that and they couldn't forget the past success and they failed for the Digitalization. And we may, be, we may say, see the same thing for Japan HR traditional management. And when I say traditional HR, HR scheme for Japan, what, what is it? I'm not sure whether you are familiar with this one or not, but I mean, that is traditional Japanese HR management is supported by two pillars. One, 
long-term employment scheme, and two, ability-based grade system. And as for long-term employment contract, maybe I shall say two important features. One, uh, sometimes, especially from foreigners, uh, I, I think they are sometimes misunderstanding because some say, well, Japanese companies apply long-term employment because Japanese people like it, or Japanese people are such by nature, or something like that. But it is not actually true. It is enforced by law. So it is by, have a legal background for that. Second feature is it has been applied for so many years. So employees, regular employees of large Japanese companies are so used with this scheme. So it is deeply embedded into Japanese corporate culture in these days. These are two features of this, that one. Maybe ability-based grade system, you are not so, you may not be so familiar with. I mean, in Japanese, we call it shoku no shikaku seido. And uh, that's ability-based grade system. So one, your salaries and corporate title is decided by ability. By ability, not by performance. Ability and performance are quite different. Ability is the potential deliverables. I mean, for our performance is uh, tangible pro uh, deliverables. Ability means you can, you can do something. And performance means you have done something already. So there's a big difference. And second feature is, in this theory, ability of employees improve year by year. So, I mean, if an employee is working for company A for a long time, the employee learns a lot about the company, and the employee knows what he has to do or she has to do, and also he, uh, he or she get to know the industry's surrounding environment or something. So with the years of services, ability increase. And as I mentioned, titles, salary decided by ability. Naturally, their salaries, titles increase year by year. That's quite unique, but that is uh, what the founder and supporters of this Shoku no Shikaku Seido tells us about this scheme. So this is a, a, what I define as a traditional HR scheme. And what is the problem? Sorry. What, why this has been successful? I mean, this has been certainly successful in 1960s, 70s, 80s, probably 1990s. What was, uh, why it was being successful? I think there are two reasons. It, I mean, basically, it is so good for employees, and these are two reasons. One, from cash flow perspective for employees, long-term employment, and the employee has a very stable uh, employment contract, no need to worry about uh, firing, so one can enjoy a stable cash flow as far as mine is working for that firm. And they can work for that firm for as far as they, they want. And second, career development uh, perspective, Ability-based grade system. So less emphasis for short-term performance. So, I mean, employees don't have to worry so much about short-term performance, so they can think about their development for longer career. So it's quite good for employees. So it worked very well for, for Japanese farms. And why this has become a challenge? I mean, just conclusion first. I think it is uh, creating uh, two challenges for Japanese farm. One, with this scheme, it tends to vitality of employees' organization is lost. Two, it is so unique, so it is difficult to build one team culture across a global organization. So these are uh, creating a kind of uh, obstacle for Japanese companies when they pursue globalization. 
And uh, if I may further explain about these、uh, obstacles for Japanese companies,、uh, kind of a flip side of the success,、uh, this scheme does not encourage employees to take risks and actions of change because employees can enjoy stable cash flow for many years. Two, employees are promoted based on ability, not on performance. As employees, regular employees, why bother to take a big risk to, to achieve a short term performance? So, That is one flip side. Second flip side is this scheme is quite unique. I just put Japan flag, left hand side, and right hand side, maybe American, Anglo American, or I mean Anglo Saxon com- com- countries, the United States, Britain, and I just put the one flag from Asia, Singapore. Japan side, long term employment and pay for ability, and probably majority of countries in the world tend to apply employment at will. And pay for performance. So it is quite unique. And that is creating、uh, some problem in this manner, probably. And because Japan's HR scheme is so unique, so when they are pushing for globalization, they tend to apply this scheme. This is what I call Japan centric model. Japan is in the middle and its headquarters. And、uh, Europe, US, Asia subsidiary, these are like subsidiaries. Just surrounding、uh, the sun. So, and probably they, they have、uh, Japanese employees executives only in Japan headquarters. So, this is a kind of uh, uh, Japan centric model which they apply. Probably it is natural for CEO executives because the scheme is so unique in Japan. So, it is natural for them to apply Japan HR scheme and apply different t y p e of HR scheme for the rest of the world. And as you could imagine, for any executives in, sitting in any country, it is easier to build a house or a headquarters where they live. So, this could be the reason. So, in this model, what I mean is applied is Japan headquarters and others, Japan and the rest of the world, Japan and others. So, this is a Japan centric HR model. And I think with this model, we have.、Uh, Three disadvantages or three、uh, problems、uh, for Japanese companies. One, information gathering.、Uh, the role of headquarters is to make an executive decision for global business. And in order to make、uh, good decisions, they have to get the right information from the world. That means they have to know the information on the ground of Europe, Asia, and United States. But、uh, having Japanese executives. Japanese CEO only in Japan headquarters won't help them to get the best available information from the floor of these countries. And two, decision makings. I mean, in order to run global business, well,、uh, the, they, they have to take risks and accept the changes. And please recall what I said about the Japan traditional HR scheme. They tend to take a risk averse type of attitude. And if one is brought up in that kind of environment, I mean, they may not be the best decision makers for that kind of、uh, global business. Third point is global teamwork. In that Japan headquarters, sorry, Japan centric model, these guys who are sitting in Japan tend to consider they may be they are superior to others sitting outside of Japan. Well, because we are sitting in the headquarters and we have a long term commitment from the firm, I mean, what, what, we are probably better than you or something like that. And、uh, having probably small talent pool who can speak English very well, 
I mean, that won't help the good communication between headquarters and subsidiaries. So these are the problems following the uh, Japan-centric model. And here, here, till here, the problems. And uh, accepting the problem, if we want to solve these uh, problems, maybe let's speak about the goal first. Let's speak about the conclusion first. What do we need in order to make our global business successful? Probably we need this kind of stuff. One, a group of energetic employees focusing on client service and organizational effective across the board, across the national boundaries. Two, HR platform which enables above globally. Probably these are the things which we need, regardless of the nationality of the uh, companies. And in case we want to have this kind of a scheme, probably the HR model which we need is what I call a global HR model. Now, Japan is detached from headquarters, and it is not sitting anymore in the middle. Japan is regarded as one of the regions, and the headquarters is just sitting in the middle. It is free from the concept of uh, Japan or nationalities. And again, the role of headquarters is decision makings. And uh, in order to have the best headquarters, we, we need to apply, we need to have the best talent to make uh, decision making at the headquarters. So we don't need to select the best talent of decision makers from only one nationalities. So in this model, the person sitting in the middle, I mean, we don't care about the nationalities and we don't select uh, people only from one location, in this case, from Japan. So this would be much better approach in order to run our business globally. So in order to apply this model, probably for Japanese management, they may need a kind of Copernican revolution of the strategy uh, for the future. So that is uh, about global HR model. And uh, I just spoke about HR model, but let me speak about culture as well. And for global organization, what kind of culture we need there? I think uh, we need what I say, global round table. I mean, please see upper diagram. Uh, eight persons are sitting. All colors are different. That means they have all different nationalities and genders. And the black person is providing opinion, X, on the table. It's on the round table. It's on the round table. So the people surrounding this table are all fair. I mean, no hierarchies. So they, they are supposed to make a discussion about opinion next. They are supposed to make a draw a deci decision out of a uh, discussion uh, regarding uh, opinion A. And I always use a word of round table as a symbol of uh, fair discussion and uh, leadership with authoritative power. And uh, uh, I forgot the other one, probably openness or something like that. But anyway, I like the concept of a global round table. Uh, probably the lower diagram, this is a different model. You see a triangle. I mean, I, I just wrote it down quite exaggerated manner to represent the Japan-centric model. The guys sitting on the top are Japanese male only, pink ones. And then they make an instruction to these who are sitting towards the end of the hierarchy. Probably uh, anyone who are working for true global organization won't work this type of uh, organization probably exceptions are these guys in the pink who are sitting already at the top of the organization. So we shouldn't apply this model. And uh, okay, then 
what should be changed here? I mean, in order to break Japan-centric model and in order to change to global model, what should be changed? Again, I put the one phrase here. Maybe I pause here again a few seconds. Please kindly consider in your part as well. Let's compare the note a few seconds later. Actually, I think Japan headquarters should be changed. So when we are speaking about uh, global HR matters, I mean, sometimes I find some executives are speaking about how we can change overseas operations. But when I hear it, I feel they regard Japan headquarters is immune to any changes for the future. But it's, I don't agree with this school. I think what should be changed is uh, Japan headquarters, in my view. And uh, next one. And if I speak about Japan headquarters, what lies at the center of HR issues there? I mean, in Japan headquarters, it should be changed. What, what should be changed uh, more concretely? I believe uh, the thing which should be changed is the long-term employment itself. I put that means uh, the long-term employment, a kind of uh, Japanese long-term employment. I mean, where employees join with BA degree after graduate and work till 60 or 65, and uh, kind of lifetime uh, employment. So that should be changed there. So I feel this is the most important uh, obstacle for globalization. And uh, what do I propose in order to achieve this one? I, my proposal is to take uh, somewhere in the middle way between long-term employment and uh, uh, employment at will. And that's what I call employment at risk. Maybe this is a, I hope you don't mind, I refer to the draft which I prepared. Maybe I used to make it in Japanese so often, but in English from time to time. So you find a Japanese gentleman speaking about global HR in very Japanese presentation style. But anyway, I hope you don't find too boring. But anyway, my, my suggestion is to take uh, employment at risk, which is a middle way between long-term employment and uh, employment at will. Uh, and I hope you are familiar with the concept of uh, HR, uh, employment at will. That's a kind of uh, framework used in the, in the States. And uh, it is easy to break labor contracts by employee as well as uh, employer. It's a common practice, legal practice in the States. And in this scheme, which I'm proposing employment at risk, the management does not conduct uh, force flow dismissals on a broad scale, but they will arrange a mutually agreed termination of employment contracts. That means the management will frankly speak to employees and ask them to resign if their performance do not match the minimum requirement. Employees won't be forced to resign, but they will leave when they come to mutual agreement to terminate the contracts. That means unlike under ordinary Japanese corporate culture, management and employees are not shy to speak about the possible termination of regular employment contract. And this may simply sound harsh and uh, not good for employees, but actually it would not be the case because I'm proposing to change the compensation scheme as well. What I'm proposing is to change uh, cash flow. I mean, I came from financial industry, so <laughs> it kicks in here. But in financial theory, higher risk need to be rewarded by higher with a higher expected return. It probably appears in the first chapter of uh, any investment textbook. I mean, now, in this case, employees are taking higher risk because their employment contract is at risk. 
So naturally, they should be rewarded with a higher compensation. So in case introduce the employment at will, the division of compensation should be arranged together. So otherwise, it's not fair to employees. And I'm not going to speak about the details of cash flow calculation or methodologies, but just to illustrate what kind of thing you need to consider in order to bring this one. Uh, this one uh, vertical axis shows annual compensation of an employee. And horizontal axis shows the years of service. Years of service get longer as you go right hand side. Your compensation get higher you, as you go, go upward. So if you see lower triangle, that's right, rectangle, that's a traditional long term employment. So their employment contract is long and annual compensation is uh, lower. And if you multiply annual compensation and years of service, you can acquire uh, total compensation for an employee. But now employee is taking a risk, so years of service should be shorter. So accordingly, employment uh, annual compensation should be higher. If you compare these two areas, you can uh, make a kind of, uh, uh, you can find a many way to, to draw the right conclusion from this one. You can work on your own uh, calculation uh, by using this. Probably you can refer to the level of compensation of the competitors as well. And uh, I think this change can be arranged by the effort of uh, individual company. But probably we may need some help from, uh, from the legal perspective. It will help them to arrange this kind of uh, uh, new HR arrangement. That is financial compensation for dismissal. I don't, I, I'm not sure whether you're familiar with this one. In Japanese, kaiko no kinsen kaiketsu. That means uh, uh, at this moment, if there is a dispute between employee and employer about the termination of contract, the court can say yes or no only. That means if I'm an employee and if I'm terminated my contract by the company, and if I appeal to the court, then there is only one solution. The court will say, well, the firm have used its right to terminate, so you can go back to the company. Or, well, it was not the case, so you are gone, and you don't get anything. Either of these two are decisions. Either of these two is a decision by the court. So I feel it is not good for both parties. Do you want to go back to the company where the company said, no, you don't have to come? I mean, no one wants to go back. I mean, do you wave your hands and say, I'm back, although you said, you don't, you, you, you don't need me. So probably it won't work effectively. So probably like many other countries, uh, it would be helpful if uh, we can have a kind of a legal framework allowing a reasonable monetary settlement uh, like in uh, other countries. If I can ask this one to our Prime Minister Shinzo Abe-san or lawmakers, uh, if I'm asked what should be changed in order to make Japanese companies more competitive and how can we make our labor market better, probably I will ask this one. And now three concluding remarks. Uh, what we need is one, I think we need to create a single global HR model platform including Japan headquarters in order for Japanese company to be successful. Two, incorporate the culture of global roundtable, which I explained. And third, we have to think about cash flow salary. I think as, as out of my experience, speaking good ideas, 
speaking about uh, something very ideal thing won't change the thing. We have to be very pragmatic as a business person. In that sense, we have to think cash flow very carefully, cash flow for employees as well as cash flow for companies. I would recommend to make it very thoroughly. So these are my presentation. And as for today, I, I feel I just spoke about global HR just from one perspective or a couple of perspectives. And I know HR job is very complicated. And we have to deal with complications of organization and human beings. And uh, globalization would not make it easier. I mean, as for the firm globalize, complexity just simply increase. So we have to be think very comprehensively. So uh, if, yeah, I'm making a kind of a self-advertisement. But if you felt something interesting out of my presentation, please kindly pick up uh, my book, which I wrote some time ago. I mean. I just brought uh, three copies. I thought I have more, but I only had three, but it's free. So please kindly uh, pick it up, but please kindly do not fight to get one. So <laughs> that's all from, from my side. Thank you. Thank you.